It's not gonna be easy. What's easy is floating downstream. What's easy is being like everyone else. You were made to stand out. You were put here for a reason. Normal isn't working anymore. Look around. Look around at the people who are giving you advice. Do they have the results you're looking for? I'm proposing a radical change. It's time to fight. It's time to fight the current. This is Aaron Thomas, and welcome to the Fight the Current podcast. I'm joining the studio today with my co-host, best friend, and business partner, Danny Campisi. Today, we're also joined by David Stoker. David is a former drug and alcohol addict who went from selling and using drugs to getting completely clean and now helping thousands of others with his story as the hope dealer. All right, guys, welcome to the show, episode nine of the Fight the Current podcast. I really believe this could be the most impactful episode yet, just because of the guests we have coming all the way from Missouri, uh, David Stoker. David, welcome to the show. Hi, it's good to be here. Yeah. So tell, tell us a little bit about what you do. you got a really cool story. A little bit about what I do. Let's see. Uh, I have multiple job titles. I am the Advocacy and Education Outreach Coordinator for the Missouri Recovery Network. I am the founder and director of a nonprofit called Better Life and Recovery. And I am the uh, co-founder and director of the Springfield Recovery Community Center. That's awesome. So basic. No, I was just going to say, what do you do there? Um, I don't know. I call myself a hope dealer. I say we deal hope to people. So a long time ago, I heard this story about a guy stuck in a hole. Have you ever heard the story about the guy stuck in a hole? No, tell us. Um, there's a guy he's stuck in a hole, and he's sitting there crying out for help and because he can't get out. And a uh, psychiatrist hears him, walks over, asks him what seems to be the problem. He tells him he's stuck in a hole. The psychiatrist says, oh, well, I got something for that. Writes him a prescription. Uh Gives him some pills, says take two of these a day, and they'll make you feel better. And he takes them, and they make him feel better, but guess what? What? Still stuck in a hole. <laughs> you know? Uh, he can go through the prescription, calls out, and uh, uh therapist comes over, asks what the problem is, and uh, he says, you know, I'm stuck in this hole, I can't get out. And the guy says, well, you seem really anxious. Here, let me teach you some mindfulness exercises to help calm you down and take care of that anxiety. And he teaches them some exercises, and they help calm him down. But at the end of the day, he's still stuck in a hole. Next morning, calls out again. Pastor walks over. Pastor asks, what's the problem? He tells him, and he's like, hey, I'll pray for you, and I'll give you a Bible. And he prays for him, makes him feel better, gives him a Bible. He reads the book. And it gives him a little hope, but he's still stuck in a hole. Next day, he's crying out for help, and somebody like me walks up, says, what's the problem? He says, I'm stuck in the hole, and the guy jumps down in the hole with him, and he says, what are you doing now? We're both stuck down here, and he says, it's okay. I've been here before. I know the way out. You know, we have the ability to impact people that, that feel completely hopeless because we've been where they've been, and we have victory on the other end. Wow, David, that's an awesome story. So you've been through the other end. So can you just kind of touch on a little bit about what has your experience been with addiction? Uh, my first memory was being uh, molested by a babysitter. And I grew up in a household where there was a lot of physical abuse. Uh, the first time I ever used was the summer before seventh grade. And it numbed me and I didn't think about the abuse. And I discovered that if I stayed high, nobody could hurt me and the past couldn't hurt me. So I pretty much used, uh, say I used marijuana, alcohol, and mini fins, which is kind of like meth light. You used to be able to buy it in gas stations. They called it trucker speed. Um, up until the summer before my senior year, I moved to Missouri and I uh, got introduced to methamphetamine. Ended up turning 21 in prison. At 22, I had a car accident that I died three times in, and that's how I got introduced, introduced to opioids. Basically, I used for about 25 years. And uh, now I have, I'll have i have 10 years of uh, recovery in uh, January 29th, uh, January 31st. Because last year I ever used, uh, the last time I used was January 31st of 2009. That's so... Awesome. Congratulations, David. 
That's awesome. So I have a question going back to that initial abuse. In what yeah. ways did that affect you? Um, it, it robbed me of pretty much everything, you know, it robbed me of my self-respect. It, uh, it made me feel different because I knew it, it wasn't happening to other kids cause I never heard them talk about it. It made me disgusting because I remember hearing my parents talk about an article that was in the newspaper about, uh, a kid that was molested. And I remember them talking about how disgusting it was. And I thought they were talking about the kid the reason I never told my parents what happened hmm. as I got older. So, because I, I didn't want them to think that I was disgusting too. And, you know, I mean, it robbed my hope. You know, I, I, I was defeated. If you add that in with the physical abuse, I mean, it just, I was beat down from, from inception almost. So, just to shoot in here, I, you know, we have your article here in front of us and it's actually in the guidepost magazine. And I remember reading about how you went from that sexual abuse to then living, was it with your grandparents? Yeah, it was my grandparents. And, yes. and then you experienced physical abuse as well. Tell us a little bit about that. I always say I knew it was going to be a little bit different. Like my, my dad was not a disciplinarian and my mom left my dad uh, the first week of fifth grade and dropped us off at her parents. And then she kind of went on her way. What I didn't know is she was working several jobs trying to save up, but she was working a multi-state area for us candy company. So she'd be gone for a month at a time, but it was probably, not that long after I went with my grandpa, we were up in his shop and uh, I was helping him. And he asked me to go get a tool and my dad had a green thumb, but he was not mechanically inclined. So when my grandpa asked me for a tool, I had no idea what he was talking about. I brought him back the wrong one. He asked me to go get the right one, brought him back the wrong one. The third time he asked me to go get the, wrong, the right one, I kind of kind of chuckled to myself because I thought it was kind of funny. and. The next thing I remember is waking up with a metallic taste in my mouth. You know, I'm, I'm, I start crying because I see blood on the floor as I lift myself up trying to figure out what happened. Um, my grandpa had like a full thermos of coffee he'd chucked and hit me in the back of the head, which had caused me to hit face down on the concrete of his uh, shop. And that knocked me out, mashed my nose up. So I was bleeding from my mouth and my nose. And that's when I knew things were going to be a little different with my grandpa. You know, he uh, was the kind of person that would beat me and then call in to school and tell him I was going to help him in the fields for the week so I wouldn't come in. And he'd wait till I healed up before he'd let me come. So, David, how how long did you stay in that environment with your grandparents? Was it long term or when when was it finally that you got away from uh, that kind of situation? It was about a year and a half before my mom got the money for a place. And then we moved out of there. Okay. And then for your rest of your upbringing, did you live with your mother then? No, about, uh, my mom had me for probably another six months or so. And then my dad got custody of me and I moved back to Illinois with my dad. Okay. So how, just tell us again, how, what you dealt with then led you into drugs. Was it just a, a way to mask the pain? And alcohol and all all the substances. Yeah, it was, a, it was a way to mask the pain. It was a way to escape the constant thoughts. It was, you know, and it also, you know, living in uh, in Branson with my grandparents, it was, you know, an hour-long bus ride into school. But all the kids I went with to school, I mean, they were a bunch of preppy kids. You know, their parents had shows on the strip. You know, uh, one of the kids I went to school with, his, his dad owned, like, gobs of gas stations. Another one, his parents owned uh, Silver Dollar City. Uh, all their parents were still together. I mean, I never felt like I fit in. And the first time I ever used with a group of kids was the first time I can ever remember fitting in. 
you know, my parents were Jehovah's Witnesses when I was a kid, so I could never do like Halloween and Thanksgiving and all those things that kids did. And I couldn't engage in those activities at school. I mean, I literally never felt like I fit in until I used drugs for the first time. And you felt in, you felt that you fit in then because of the way the drugs made you feel or because of the association with the other people doing them? Because of the association with the other people doing them. Gotcha. I was actually with somebody doing the exact same thing that they were doing. So can you kind of just go back and how, how bad was it? What would you say that there was a point in your life that it was an all time low for you? And if so, what, what did that feel like? What, what was occurring at that time that it, it just felt like you hit rock bottom? I don't know if I ever hit rock bottom. I know there, there's that perception that people have to hit rock bottom. Um, I would say I, I lived at rock bottom and on occasion I would get a shovel and dig a little deeper. Mm. You know, I mean, I, I've flatlined on eight different occasions. I've been found bled out by my sister after splashing my wrists. You know, I mean, I, I lived on the bottom constantly. So I want to go ahead and, and jump back to something that you said previously, but something that you just mentioned now is you flatlined eight times. What what was that experience like? I always heard and I always read about some people who had the uh, near-death experiences and uh, for you to have actually flatlined eight times. What What is that feeling of going through that? And then once once you're back... What is that feeling of, okay, now I have life back? Can you just go into that a little bit more? You know, I, I wish I could tell you there was this epiphany. I should have had an epiphany. I never saw a white light. Maybe that should have told me something, <laughs> <laughs> you know, about the way I was living my life. But, uh, you know, other than hearing myself get coded uh, after my car accident, you know, I heard my, I, I heard them pronounce me dead. But I don't remember any out-of-body experiences or anything like that. I do know, you know, I mean, the, the level of your substance use. I mean, I had people sneaking me drugs into recovery rooms on occasion after. So. Talk about the lowest of the low. I guess I did have a point where, you know, where I finally gave God a chance, where I finally found something that I couldn't escape the pain of, you know, now that's, my dad had uh, committed suicide and I had broken up with my son's mom at the time. And my son was about a year old and she wasn't letting me see my son and no amount of anything I did made me stop hurting because of the combination of those two things going on. What age were you when that happened? Um, let's see. It would have been 2008. So 36. So was that before your conversion? That was a little bit before. How, how far before your conversion experience was that? Um, that was, about 11 months before my conversion experience. And you'd say that was your lowest, if you, if you could say a lowest point, that was probably the, the darkest point. It was, and many people would look at my life and say that that, based on everything else that had happened, that I'd have lower points, but emotionally I think that was what drained me the most was those two things happening, kind of almost in tandem. And how did those two areas affect you at that time of your life? Did it turn you more into the substance abuse? Were you in? Were you depressed? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I I mean I, I kind of lived in a state of depression, but it. Uh, and I guess I, I I always drank to the point that I blacked out every night. So <clears throat> at that time, at that time I kind of turned away from street drugs. And I was going to college, working on a master's degree at the time, and I would drink every night until I blacked out. Wow. So, I mean, 
I just continued that drinking, but it, it didn't help the whole time I, I would drink. I would think about my dad and not seeing my son. So David, did you, did you deal drugs as well? Um, yeah, I dealt drugs and manufactured methamphetamine from, eh, I don't know, probably for about a, let's see, 21 until 21 would have been 93 for about eight years. Hmm. Wow. Now, was that when you were dealing, was that your like source of income or is that like what you relied on? Um, I also, I, I waited tables or bartended at the same time. Okay. So it's amazing how much money I made every year and yet how much money I didn't have at the end of the year because I partied it all away. Right. Well, David, you definitely have an impactful background story. I mean, I'm just sitting here listening to everything that you've gone through. And I think that's a prime example of why you're inspiring so many people today with your past story. So can you kind of go into telling us about your conversion experience? How, what was the first step that you took to uh, get off of the substance abuse and start focusing on this new path of your life, this new hope that you have? I was, you know, between growing up a Jehovah's Witness with my parents screaming and yelling at each other on the way to Kingdom Hall and then hopping out of the car with big smiles on their faces, you know, like, ah, brother, so-and-so, how you doing? I grew up thinking that people of faith were very two-faced right. and hypocritical. I mean, my dad was, you know, my dad had, my dad had an alcohol use disorder. He had a drinking problem and yet it was never talked about and nobody knew, um, you know, and then the babysitter being from church and I, uh, and then after, through my grandpa's abuse, I lost my faith. So, and I became an atheist. The, you said the babysitter, the one that you're talking about, the one that abused you was actually from yeah, church. Yeah, when I was really little. Yeah, it was from church. Wow. I can see how that would totally negatively affect your view of people of faith. Yeah. So, so the first thing that impacted my faith a little bit, I tell people that I became, that I went from being an atheist to an agnostic because of methamphetamine. And people always find that funny. <laughs> tell us about that. Well, when you stay up for long periods of time, uh, you start to see what they call shadow people. Because, you know, you, you kind of start to, uh, you have a little mess psychosis and the shadows kind of become people. You think there's people in the trees watching you. And my shadow people stopped being shadow people and became what I used to call my constant companion. It was this thing, you know, bright red eyes, jagged edges, blacker than black. I mean, it almost seemed to suck light into it. And it was always there over my shoulder telling me to do the absolute worst things. And over time, I realized that it was some kind of an evil spirit. And if there were evil spirits out there, then there was probably something more than just us. So maybe there was something out there. So it, it, that's so interesting. And you're not the first person that's talked to me about that. I've heard people countless times when they talk about substance abuse, talk about these spirits. I had a really close friend named David who talked about in, in the deepest pit of his time when he was addicted to alcohol. He would have like, he would be laying in his bed and he'd just feel like there's like an evil presence in the room and there's like spirits like hovering over him. What do you, how do you explain that? That seems so interesting that, you know, if there's demonic powers, how they work within substance abuse. I think we definitely lower our inhibitions and we let down a lot of those barriers that a lot of people see. I think uh, a lot of times we function almost more out of our subconscious than we do our conscious after we've been up for a while. And I think we make it easier for demons to prey on us. That's interesting. So... 
so I was an agnostic and I'd been working at the same restaurant for like, I don't know, five, six years at the time. And, and there was a kid that I'd worked with the whole time that came up to me after my dad died um, and invited me to church. She was like, you know, I care about you. I've never seen you the way you are right now. I'd really like you to come hang out with me and my wife at church. And I laughed at him. You know, I told him he was lucky to get me to church for his wedding. <laughs> That's and I wasn't good. going to church. That's funny. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm not going, man. I don't go to church. And a couple of weeks later, he invited me again, and he got the same response. And a couple of weeks after that, his wife, uh, she was like, hey, uh, me and Nate are uh, going to a concert, free food, live music. Would you want to come with us? And I was like, heck, yeah sounds great and she's like well it's after church on sunday (laughs) (laughs) so so i went with them you know i always say they're kind of like my ananias if you're familiar um whenever uh saul was struck blind on the road to damascus god told this uh this man ananias he's like hey i'm gonna have somebody come and i need you to minister to him and ananias is like yeah sure and he's like okay it's this guy named saul (laughs) And I can see him right now going, you don't mean Saul of Tarsus, do you? <laughs> the guy that kills Christians. He, you know, I, I was an angry agnostic. I like to belittle Christians to make myself feel intellectually superior. I mean, I was, and I was mostly drunk all the time. So I was a pretty mean guy. I wasn't a nice guy. I always say I don't have holes in me. I wasn't born with because I was a nice person, you know, um, and they reached out to me and they loved on me anyway, in spite of, they loved me when I didn't love myself. They cared about me when I didn't care about myself. So, so they invited me to church and it wasn't what I remembered. You know, the first song that I heard when I walked in was crab to Jesus by third day. <clears throat> they actually talk about addiction in the song. Right. Yep. I've heard the song, you know, it's a good song. Uh, yeah. And the, uh, the lesson was actually on the sermon was on uh Paul, you know, and he was talking about the good I want to do, I do not do, no, it's the evil I do not want to do, that is what I do. And all I could think of is my substance use, you know. I wanted to stop. I didn't want to be a constant disappointment to my baby sister who was the one person in my life I really wanted to make proud. And now I have my son and I really wanted to be a dad for my son, not a dad like I'd had when I was growing up that drank all the time. And, uh, and I don't know. I mean, and I got to hang out with some people that actually cared about me with no strings attached. It wasn't like, Hey, do you want to go drinking tonight? No click. You know, they, they kind of cared about me regardless. So they, uh, they talked to me, they had what they called a celebrate recovery during first service. I got invited back to come to it. And, I told him I'd probably take him up on it. And I started coming to church because I got to hang out with a couple of people that actually cared about me once or twice a month if I was off on Sunday. Yeah, David, I'm reading in your article in, in Guidepost here that, and this is the, what's it, the March 2017? Is that what it was? I don't know if you, even know if you... Okay. Um, yeah. So March 2017 yeah. of the Guidepost magazine... The most impactful thing about this, and actually one, an interesting story, is my mom was the first person who read this article. This is kind of a mom magazine. <laughs> so uh, she she read the article, and then she called me while I was at work. Hey, Danny, I need to talk to you about something that's important. I called her back because I was worried that <laughs> something happened. She's like, oh, no. It's just I read this article in this guidepost magazine by this David Stoker guy. And I was so inspired by it that I just felt it led on my heart to call you to see if you could get him on your podcast. And I remember thinking to myself, well, uh, that may be unlikely, but it would be really cool. (laughs) So long story short, ended up reading your article, being just as affected by it, letting Aaron read it. And that day is the day we reached out to you. And you agreed to be on. Here we are today. 
I say that to say in reading your article, I love the part, the part that made me the most emotional when reading it is you said at this time, for the first time in your life, you felt if someone liked you just for you. And you said, quote, I didn't know it then, but that was the start of my recovery, quote. So I loved that part because you talk about how that is actually was the start is just finally feeling accepted for who you are. That helped you like you. Yeah, it did. It, it, it helped to have people love it on me that weren't exactly like me. In fact, they were so different than I was. So. So I ended up, like I said, once or twice a month, I would go to church if I was off on Sunday. And then months later, I am uh, leaving the bar after drinking all night, and a police officer pulls out behind me. And I know if he pulls me over, I'm going to get a DUI. If I get a DUI, I'm going to get kicked out of my practicum because at this time, I am actually working at a treatment facility, a full-blown alcoholic doing a a practicum for my master's. I was the hypocrite that I hated my parents for being, I had become. And I knew that if they kicked me out of my practicum, I'd get kicked out of grad school. They'd flunk me out. So I, uh, I did one of those foxhole prayer things. God, if you're real, you let me not get pulled over. I, I swear I'll start going to church every Sunday. And I took a corner, the police officer pulled with me, and it's like, God, if you're real, you let me not get pulled over. I'll start going to church every Sunday. I'll never drink again. By the time I pulled onto my street, I was going to give up drinking, smoking, drugging, fighting, premarital sex, cussing, and, you know, start going to church every Sunday. There was a lot of corners on the way. (laughs) I guess we could be thankful for that. (laughs) And uh, when I pulled onto my street, he kept going forward. So I pulled in, parked in my garage. I passed out in my garage after I closed it, which is something I did a lot back then. And uh, it was different, though. When I woke up in the morning, I actually remembered the night before. And I also remembered that it was Super Bowl Sunday. I had a Super Bowl party I was going to go to at one of my friend's houses where everybody drank and smoked. And the voice that I've heard pretty much my entire life talked to me and was like, why would you try to quit just to fail? How many times do you have to fail before you realize this is who who you are, this is who you're going to be the rest of your life? And I sat there and I listened to that voice, and I'm like, you know what? You're absolutely right. So I hopped in the shower, and I headed to my friend's house for the Super Bowl. What's up, everybody? Hope you're enjoying this conversation with David Stoker. I got to say, for me personally, this is the most impactful episode I've been a part of. And I love just to hear his heart and his advice. We said last time on episode 8 that anybody who leaves a review, we would be sharing it on the air this time. So, two reviews from two awesome people. Uh, Number one, first guy's name is Candied Fool. Interesting name. (laughs) But he said, this podcast ranks right up there with top tier leadership and personal development podcasts. These young men know how to dig deep and discuss meaningful topics and are just enjoyable to listen to. You won't regret the time spent. So, Candied Fool, thank you for that uh, review. I appreciate that very much. And the second review was from a guy named Just a Little Punk. We got to get better on these names here, guys. <laughs> we're gonna be we're gonna be giving uh, giving your names on the air. So, if you want to add your you know real name, you can. So. He said that these two young men are very insightful and have a very advanced way of thinking about life. Their conversations and ideas have led me to rethink the way I live my life and implement tactics to help lead a happier, healthier, and more financially smart life. Thanks. So appreciate you, Just a Little Punk. You're the man, and we really are appreciative of the review, and we hope we continue to inspire you as we are inspired by our guests and the people around us absolutely and we want to encourage you guys that haven't already left us review to go ahead and get engaged in our social media presence go ahead head over to itunes google music stitcher uh, any platform whatever you're listening on and just go ahead drop us a review let us know what you're thinking of the podcast we would love to hear from you also head over to our social media pages over at instagram at fight the current and also the same with Facebook. So both Facebook and Instagram at Bite the Current. 
like I said, Instagram, we're stepping up, having a lot more images out there, soon to be uh, coming is videos from Danny and I so that we can kind of just be uh, more present in what we're doing here at Fight the Current. So again, we appreciate you guys, we love you guys, and just thank you so much for your support. Now we're going to go ahead and get back to the episode with David. Enjoy, guys. I mean, I was beat before I started. And on the drive there, uh, I always say I have to credit two musicians. One of them is the Rolling Stones, because I hate the Rolling (laughs) Stones. I think they suck. Can't stand them. And uh, their song came on the radio, so I started flipping, trying to find something I actually wanted to listen to. And and I came to a dead spot, so I stopped to see what was going to play. And the first words out of the speakers were, uh, I wish you could see me now. I wish I could show you how I'm not who I was. It's a song by a Christian entertainer, Brandon He, called I'm Not Who I Was. And, and I heard a voice that I'd never heard before that told me to go home. It said, go home. You can do this. And like the man I am, I pulled over to the side of the road and I cried for probably 10, 15 minutes. And then I turned around and I went home, you know, uh, the next day I contacted, uh, our associate pastor, uh, our pastor had left. We were actually in an interim thing at our church. So I contacted our associate pastor who, who I talked to quite a bit because he at one time had been agnostic too. And I kind of related to him. And, uh, I went in and saw him that week and he asked me some questions about Christ. And, uh, I mean, that's really where that, the conversion was. I mean, I haven't used since then. I haven't smoked a cigarette since then. I, you know, dated my wife for over a year and nothing happened until our honeymoon night. I've been in one fight and it was in a boxing ring for a, a fundraiser. You know, I, uh, I've cussed a couple of times since and, you know, progress, not perfection, but I mean, it really, I mean, Christ turned my entire life around. You know, I had tried everything. I'd tried residential, multiple residential and outpatient treatments, psychiatrists, therapists, medication, been in jail, in and out of jails more times than I count on my hands and feet, you know, spent almost a year and a half in prison and, and nothing worked ever until I turned to Christ. You know, I always say I believe that there's multiple pathways to recovery, but the only one that worked for me was God and the Holy Spirit. You know, that was it. David, that is that is awesome and inspiring and I I think it's hard because a lot of people that might be struggling with addiction is they're told to seek all these other solutions and not saying that those solutions are wrong paths. But I think it's unique for you that you've gone through all of the other paths and you haven't you haven't felt that freedom like you have when you finally discovered Christ and you had that you finally had that light in your darkness. And I think it's interesting that you said about when you went to that Super Bowl party, you had those uh, evil spirits that are at work telling you to go and you were actually on your way to the party and then you saw light light came into your life and uh, I, I just think that's a that's an awesome testimony of what it truly is to have a relationship with Christ and just the impact that that has to just completely turn your faith around and the fact that you said uh, thanks to substance abuse that's how you became from atheist to agnostic and you just truly have an amazing story, David, an amazing story. Could you give some practical steps to some people that might be struggling with the same thing? They might not know where to turn. They might have uh, people telling them to go one way uh, and they, they're just lost. They don't know where to go to overcome this addiction. What are some steps that you would give them to take? Well, I, I, I'm working on something and have been for a while that I call the locker room. Everybody kind of gets sports analogies, even people that don't play sports. So I say, you know, first thing you have to figure out what team you're going to play for. You know, are you going to play for team jacked up or team sober? Are you going to play for Satan? Or are you going to play for God? Are you going to play for team broke or team I have a career? You know, figure out what team you're going to play for. And then the first thing you need to do is find a coach. 
and that coach, you know, a lot of times in, uh, in recovery coaches look like sponsors, but sometimes they look like mentors. It could be a youth pastor. It could be your grandpa. It could be that person whose life you really want to have in five years. From there, we find, uh, teammates, you know, people that want us to be successful. Uh, you know, uh, I heard a guy once say, you show me your five closest friends, I'll show you your future. So put people in your life that are going to give you the kind of future that you want. You know, um, next thing is called a game plan. And that's something that your coach is going to help you with. So you definitely want a coach that uses the game plan that you want to use. Whether it's the 12 steps, whether it's the Bible, whether it's the Bhagavad Gita, you know, and I just say that one because it's fun to say, you know, but find find whatever that game plan is that's going to work for you. And then we practice and practice looks like small groups. It looks like recovery support meetings, you know, places where you're surrounded by like-minded people, you know, uh, where I live in Springfield, they have what are called mob meetings and those stand for master of business. So if you want to have a successful business, then you go to a mob meeting, which is full of people that have successful businesses. You know, so find that meeting that's going to help you get there. Sometimes life's going to kick your butt. And in sports, they call it timeout. So figure out what you need to do that's going to help you center and focus when life gets too much, whether that's meditation, prayer, you know. Um, I think the one unique thing I throw in is home field advantage. I personally believe that, you know, a lot of people in recovery are happy to go to a meeting every day and every single one of their friends be someone in recovery. I think we need to do things to make us vital to the community, you know, do community, uh, do community service, you know, go in like we paint elementary school playgrounds. Uh, last year we had a stream team that picked up three and a half tons of trash out of Missouri riverways make yourself necessary to your community, become a positive force in your community. And finally, uh, you know, have a game day preparation. Like for me, every morning I wake up, I do a gratitude list. I write down three things I'm thankful for while my coffee brews. And then I sit there, drink my coffee and I give thanks to God for those three things. And I keep a list of them. And you know, if life starts kicking my butt and I wake up depressed one day, I can look it up. Uh, 300 things, 100 days worth of things that I am grateful for. And after I get through reading that list, it's really hard for me to sit there and, and be a negative Nancy for the rest of the day because I realize how much I have in my life. You know, and then uh, I did this as a presentation at a conference for the first time a couple weeks ago. And I asked the crowd for feedback. I'm like, is there anything that you'd add? And there was a girl that was like, well, yeah, actually, she said, you didn't say anything about winning or losing. So remember that life is kind of like a contact sport, really. You know, uh, we live with a common purpose, but man, winning's great. But you know what? I've learned more in my defeats than I have in my victories. So don't beat yourself up when you're trying to do something and you don't succeed. Just use that information that you learn in that loss to attain it the next time. You know, I'm not going to get better playing against playing basketball against a bunch of third graders and winning every time I play. I'm going to get better getting my butt kicked by LeBron James every time. I'll never beat them, but I'll get better through those losses than I'll ever get winning against people that aren't going to make me a better player. Awesome. And, and David, I know in your article – and it's actually 2018. I think I said 2017 in case anyone does want to look it up. But you list three different steps. And I think those three steps are really powerful. And they are kind of interlaced with the the analogies you just gave. Number one is nobody wants to be an addict. Compassion can kickstart recovery. Number two is addicts need spiritual grounding. And number three, and this you know, is really vital that I think a lot of people miss is people in recovery need to help others. So could you talk really quickly about why those things are the most important to you and to your story as opposed to other options for recovery? 
You know, as a uh, atheist and an agnostic, honestly, I was a hedonist. You know, I lived just to make myself happy. And I could care less who I hurt because at the end of the day, they were going to bury me. I was going to turn to dust and nothing that I'd ever done did mattered. So that spiritual grounding helped me because it showed me that there was more to life than just this life and that everything I do in this life, someday I'm going to have to give account for, you know, I remember whenever I uh, got saved, I had my friends cause we tend to run around with people that are a lot like us. And a lot of my friends have been atheists and agnostic and they're like, so you got saved because it makes your life easier. And I'm like, brother, it makes my life 10 times harder. You know, I know that I have to be more aware of everything that I do. So for me, it was really important because, uh, well, A, the compassion other people gave me, like I said, man, when people were loving on me that didn't have substance use disorders, when people could hear my story and Celebrate Recovery helped a lot with that. You know, people that didn't have the same struggles that I am accepting me, even though I had a substance use disorder and they didn't. For the first time in my life, I actually forgave myself for everything that had happened to me and all the choices that I'd made. And I was able to forgive other people for what they'd done to me because you know what? I wasn't that person that I saw. I mean, every time I looked in the mirror, I saw an addict and I saw a junkie, I saw a convict. And I finally started hanging out with people who saw me as more than that. So that compassion goes a long way. You know, that spiritual grounding gave me purpose. I didn't have purpose. I was pretty rudderless. My only purpose was to make sure that I was happy and had a good time. And that's no way to go through life. You know, and finally, like I said, the other purpose was making my community better. You know, I'd lived so long making my community worse. And whenever I realized that I could do things to make my community better, that I could do things to become accepted in my community. You know, I just had a, uh, a, a opioid summit that my nonprofit put together with a couple other organizations uh, Friday. And, uh, you know, Wednesday I had a Senator call me and he, and say, you know what, I really like what you're doing. What can I do to be involved with your, uh, summit that's coming up in two days? I mean, I'm a convict. I'm a, you know, somebody that used substances for 25 years mm-hmm. and I have a Senator calling me on the phone now saying that he likes what I'm doing. How can he help? I mean, who gets that? Who does that after they've been through my life? You know, so, I mean, that purpose to our community is huge. That's, that's so cool, man. So in what big ways has your life changed since this experience? There's a lot of people who are out there who are at, who are at rock bottom, who are depressed, who see absolutely no hope and do not see any light at the end of the tunnel. And I know at times when I've been down, You don't even realize you're so down that you don't even realize there is hope for the future. So what would you say to those people? Man, this road may not be easy, but it is so worth it. You know, uh, I mean, but literally you've got to reach out and you've got to work at it. I'd love to tell you how easy it's been. And parts of it for me were pretty easy, but you also have to figure I struggled for almost a quarter of a century through it. You know, I tried to quit multiple times with uh, no success. But I think that desire is a huge thing. You know, um, I think that people have to want it on one level or another. And if you're going to meetings, I know I see people all the time that are like, well, my, my PO is making me come to these meetings. My judge is making me come to those, these meetings. They're really not. They may be telling you to. I mean, they may be giving you a couple options that you think suck but you're picking to be there because you could choose not to go there and go to prison. So on a fundamental level, there's a piece of you that doesn't want your life to continue going the way it's going right now. There's a piece of you that wants better for yourself. And that's a huge first step. So don't discount the fact that you're sitting in church because you don't have to go. Don't discount the fact that you're sitting in a recovery support meeting because you don't have to be there. You know, believe it or not, a judge didn't hold a gun to your head and walk you through the door. You chose to go there of your own volition. So once you make that first step, I mean, then look at the locker room. I mean, find somebody who's doing really well that can give you some guidance. 
starts, get get rid of those people that are going to continually drag you down. I mean, I had to write off some family members when I got sober because they were still actively using and I couldn't be around that. You know, I mean, we may have to make hard choices, but the truth is, D, what do they say? If you always do what you always did, you'll always get what you always got. If you're sick and tired of the way your life is right now, then maybe you need to do something a little bit different. So, I mean, that, that's where I would start. So tell us about, just in a couple sentences, what's it like on the other side? Is happiness possible for an addict? Oh my gosh, I am happy, joyous, and free. I mean, this, I have so much hope for the future that I'm able to share it with everybody I come in contact with. You know, I used to be a fun sucker. I swear I could walk into a room and suck the hope out of everybody in the room. And today I'm able to give that to people. It's, it's, it's amazing. I love the life that I have today. You know, I, I say if my daughter, cause now I have a daughter too. If my daughter would grow up to date a guy like I used to be, um, I hope God would intercede because part of me would make want to make that guy disappear. Uh, if my daughter were to grow up and date a guy like I am today, I would give it my full blessing. I mean, I hope my son grows up to be like the man I am today. David, you keep using the word hope. And I think what's awesome is in the article that we read is you're doing a huge campaign around hashtag hope dealer. So you were around the streets dealing drugs, substances, and now you're around dealing hope, essentially. Can you speak a little bit about what, how did that come to you? How did the concept of hope dealer come to you and hashtag hope dealer and everything that you're doing with that campaign? Just mention a little bit about it. How can we continue to follow that? Well, you know, I, I've always heard that went from dealing dope to dealing hope, and I really clung to that. You know, I really liked it. So I think Hope Dealer is just kind of a natural extension from there. So I decided to get it tattooed on my arm. And now it's on the back of a lot of the T-shirts that we make. You know, in fact, the T-shirt that I'm wearing right now has it on the back of it. On the front, it says this is what recovery looks like with a couple thumbs pointing up towards the head. You know, I'm very vocal about my recovery. Um, I, I believe we should be visible and vocal because so many people only hear the negative side of addiction. And they never get to see the positive side of people in recovery and how much people in recovery are able to do and how much they do give back. I mean, I'm not a unicorn. You know, there's 23 and a half million people in the United States in long-term recovery. And some of us are making a huge impact in our community. Some of us are doing a lot of things to make our community better. So I don't know. Uh, www.betterlifeandrecovery.com is our website. You know, you can find us on Facebook. Um, I have a couple of blogs out there that every once in a while pop up in a newsletter. I always say subscribe to our newsletter. You'll get stuff every single month coming in. Um, that'll kind of tell you about the events we're doing. And if there's a new blog, it'll have it on there. So I've been bad about my blogs lately. I need to get back to writing some more. Cool. Well, before we get to some of our closing questions, I just want to ask you, Something I think is important. What the what does an addict look like? I think most people have the perception of an addict that you'd be able to notice, okay, that guy or that girl is an addict. Would you say that addicts look like addicts or do you think they're the they're people that pass us on a daily basis we would never think are addicts but are? And maybe people listening to this, and we all have our own struggles, are thinking to themselves, yeah, nobody knows this but I'm struggling too. You know, we just uh, made a documentary. We screened it for the first time Friday at the uh, uh, opioid summit that, that we put on. And I had this great name for a documentary. We were making it for families. So it's four parents who have lost their kids to overdoses and seven sets of parents who have kids in recovery. Kind of asking them questions, trying to normalize it. And we came up with a new name for the documentary after interviewing, because every single parent said, not my child, you know, my child doesn't do heroin, my child doesn't do meth, that's the homeless person living under a bridge. You know, we had a lady that, uh, she's a family physician, you know, and she was like, I have 
patients who had substance use disorders. But when it was my own kid, she said, I had no idea what, what was going on. And when I found out, I had no idea what to do. I mean, it's the person next door. It's the person walking by you on the street. Um, you know, what does, what does a Christian look like? What does a businessman, you know, okay, maybe a businessman you can tell by the attire, but yet look at Mark Zuckerberg. I consider him a businessman. He walks in in jeans and a hoodie. You know, same thing with people with substance use disorders. It's not that person that, that looks broken. You know, sometimes that person with the substance use disorder is that person that's got that fake permagrin on and they're so good at putting it on that you never know. You know, a lot of us are chameleons. We learn what we need to do to fit in a room. I mean, I learned from an early age to read people because I had to walk into a room and read my grandpa and figure out what I could get away with that day without getting beat unconscious. So, so we learn to adapt to environments. So, I mean, it's, like, I'm sure it's like your show. You know, I, I've had clients that were millionaires. I've had clients with PhDs. I've had clients that, you know, had a fifth grade education and were living on unemployment or disability. It looks like your mom. It looks like your dad. It looks like your brother. It looks like your sister. It's, it's a lot of times people who have done something, they've made a choice, something that's helped them escape something that's helped them numb something that's helped them feel better about themselves and over time their bodies become dependent on it and once our body becomes dependent on it it's no longer a choice it's something we have to have to feel normal so david if you were sitting across the campfire or across the desk from somebody listening to you right now who's struggling and as bad as you are maybe worse if you could summarize your advice to them, what would you say? What would, what would you say looking to them in the eyes? I care about you, and I, I know you may not believe this, but it can get better. I'm living proof. And I would love to take you to some meetings and show you a lot of other people who have found a better life on the other side. You know, I mean, that's my big thing. Uh, there's so many different meetings out there and I believe in taking people to an AA meeting, an NA meeting, a smart recovery meeting, a celebrate recovery meeting and letting them find what works best for them instead of making them go to what worked for me. I'd rather give somebody an option because what spoke to me may not speak to them. But I think the piece that we have to hold on to is compassion. You know, we've got to love people. Uh, people, don't have value because they stop using people have value because we're created in God's image. It doesn't matter if you're sober or if you're still getting high, you inherently have worth and we need to stop treating people like they're less than people when they're using because they're not, you know, that's so true, David. I, I just want to go ahead and say thank you so much for, for all your time. I mean, just sitting here, this, Danny mentioned it at the beginning, this is one of the most impactful, inspiring interviews that we've, we've done to date on our, on our podcast. And uh, we just, again, we want our listeners to have the resources to also, uh, if the, if they personally are struggling, if they know someone who is struggling uh, with addiction, could you just tell us a little bit about uh, what kind of websites can they go to if they are struggling, some resources? Uh, we will also go ahead and put them all in the description of the podcast so they're easy to click on. Uh, but yeah, just go over. I know you mentioned a little bit about your Hope Dealer and the resources that you have. But maybe a broader version of if you are struggling with addiction, how do you find out where uh, these meetings might be taking place in your local communities, stuff like that? Well, I mean, for like Narcotics Anonymous, Celebrate Recovery, places like that, I mean, you can just go to Google, put in Narcotics Anonymous or Celebrate Recovery. And when you get to those sites, there'll be a location finder where you can put in an address or a zip code and they'll show you meetings that are close to you. Uh, if you're looking for treatment, there's an organization called SAMHSA, which uh, stands for the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, so S-A-M-H-S-A. -S -A. Um, you can go on there, and same thing, you can look on their site, and they have a, a treatment locator, so that you can go on there if you're wanting to get into treatment and find treatment that uses evidence-based practices that's close to you. 
finally, you know, um, we don't have a 24 hour line at the moment, but from the time we open our doors till the time we close our doors at the Springfield Recovery Community Center, we have a certified peer specialist that's always there. So, you know, I mean, the number there is 417-368-0852. And if you're struggling or you have a family member that's struggling and you have questions you want to ask, call that number and there'll be somebody on the end of that phone who can answer your questions. And if they can't, they'll forward that call on to me so that I can answer your questions. Awesome. 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 I was hoping there'd be a way for people who weren't in your state to still deal with your recovery, you know, information and all that. That's really cool. So. Absolutely. And like I said, uh, I mean, look me up on Facebook or, you know, better life and recovery on Facebook or the website and contact me through there. If you want to personally ask me anything. Great. So could you just uh, like spell out your name and make sure they can find you on that stuff? Yeah. Um, my name is David Stoker. Last name is S-T-O-E-C-K-E-R. Uh, the best email to reach me at is probably david at betterlifeandrecovery.com. Okay. So, like I said, there's a Better Life and Recovery. That's the easiest way to remember the, the address. And then it's just my first name. Great. So we'll put the link in the bio and in the, in, in the description for that. So our final question for you, David, is just what does it mean to fight the current? You know, the current right now still, uh, it still kind of disenfranchises a lot of people that, that are like me. You know, there's so many places that are, don't hire felons, so many places that don't allow felons to come live there. Uh, you know, uh, apartments, people that rent houses. I think fighting the current, like I said, is treating everybody like they have value. You know, uh, I, I remember this guy, uh, Yeshua Bar Yosef, uh, that walked the face of the earth. Uh, today we call him Jesus, you know, but he says what you do to the least of these, you know, um, a lot of people look at people with substance use disorders as the least of these. And you know what, you got to remember that the way we treat those people, I mean, we should treat everybody like, like they're Christ. I mean, we're built in God's image. It just, ah, man. Um, I don't know. I get pretty passionate about that. I am so, so tired of seeing people marginalized because of their substance use disorders. So I think swimming against the current is treating everybody like they have value and worth no matter where they are, no matter what they do or they don't do. Awesome answer. That may be my favorite yet. Great, David. Well, David Stoker, you're an inspiration. You're a man of God, and you're someone that I look up to. I know a lot of people are going to look up to. I really hope people follow you and like your your page because I know you. I've you know been friends with you on Facebook, I guess, for about a week now, and it's really cool to just to see the the activity that you have on there. So, I want to extend my gratitude and thank you for being on the show, and I'm so excited for this to get out there for people to hear it. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about what Christ has done in my life and to uh, hope, maybe share a little bit of hope with some people that might be listening to this. You know, if you have a substance use disorder or you love somebody with a substance use disorder, recovery is possible on the other side, I promise you. You know, I, I, I wouldn't have made it through what I've made it through if recovery wasn't possible. And man, it's amazing. It really is. Thanks for letting me share. You've been listening to the Fight the Current podcast, your guide to living an extraordinary life in an ordinary world. We ask you to subscribe and review this podcast as it helps out a lot. We sincerely hope you've gotten value today, and if so, we would love to hear from you. Check out our Facebook and Instagram pages and give us a shout out. Keep posted for our next upcoming episode, and until next time, swim upstream and fight the current.